Welcome to Parse, the official podcast of the Elaheo Midyar Mir Jalali Institute of Iranian Studies at the University of Toronto. In Persian, Parse means strolling or wandering around as an observer of contemporary life and modernity. In a similar spirit, our podcast Parse aims to take our listeners on an intellectual stroll in the field of Iranian studies, where they can listen to different ideas from leading thinkers, academics, activists, and authors in the discipline. Our podcast will provide thought-provoking excerpts from lectures and seminars organized by the Iranian Studies Institute at U of T to make the extensive work we do with our partners more accessible to academics and non-academics alike across Canada and beyond. The 33rd episode of Parse is an excerpt from a lecture given by Thabit A.J. Abdullah on the struggle to save Iraq's national archives from destruction and the many wars and conflicts that Iraq has experienced in the past decades. Abdullah's speech is the first part of a more extensive seminar organized by the Iranian Studies Institute at U of T, titled The Looting and Repatriation of Iraq's Archives, a conversation with Saad Eskandar and Sara Farhan. Dr. Abdullah is currently a professor of history at York University in Toronto, Canada. His teaching and research focuses on modern and medieval Iraq, the Indian Ocean, and the Ottoman Empire. His recent publications include A Short History of Iraq, from 636 to the present, and Merchants, Mamluks, and Murder, the Political Economy of Commerce in 18th Century Basra. In addition to English and Arabic, his books have been translated to several languages, including Italian, Spanish, and Chinese. Professor Abdullah is also a regular commentator in a number of television and radio programs in Iraq, Canada, and the United States. It's important, I think, to place the whole question of the role of the archives and so forth within a historical context of where did this archive come from? Where is it situated? The Iraqi National Archives have their origins with the establishment of the modern state of Iraq in 1932. Believe it or not, even though the country at that time was incredibly poor, incredibly high levels of illiteracy, very minimal infrastructural development, there was an enormous, enormous feeling of optimism about the country. This optimism was overwhelming in many ways. Both the elites that were associated with the monarchy had major aspirations that Iraq would become uh, an industrialist, capitalist country that would serve their interests. But also, even the opposition, even those who were deeply malcontent with the regime at that time, the monarchy, like the Communist Party of Iraq, for example, also were incredibly optimistic that the socialist revolution was around the corner and it would usher in an age of brotherhood and equality and so forth. Believe it or not, even the British who were who maintained their control over the country at that time had incredible hopes for the country. When they sponsored Iraq's membership into the League of Nations in 1932, 
they, the report that they included stated, and I'm paraphrasing here, that of all the mandated regions of the League of Nations, Iraq was the one country that is best situated to rapidly catch up with the industrialized West and become a, a prominent member of the international community. The current, of course, very unhappy state that the country finds itself in begs the question of why, what happened, what went wrong? Unfortunately, there's still a very dominant discourse that tries to look for an essentialist response to this uh, question. The problem many scholars and commentators say, and I've sort of have almost a lifetime of trying to struggle against this, is that the Iraqi people are either of tribal mentality or sectarian mentality as if it is an ingrained essential part of their characteristic that cannot be changed and hence is not really feasible to, uh, uh, to uh, encourage the development of national unity and progress. Others point to sort of an original sin kind of theory that Iraq was created by the British, people who don't get along together were lumped together, quote unquote, and therefore that is the problem. It's an artificial uh, state, as if there is something that is not artificial in the establishment of any state. Uh, I believe that this is really very lazy scholarship, that when one looks a little bit deeper into the current malaise that the country is facing, we see that there are really very logical, reasonable, very specific causes for what is going on today. I will point very quickly to four main points, each one of which I think would have strained the social fabric of any country. Number one, in 1963, Iraq witnessed a, an Arab nationalist coup that placed the country firmly on the road to becoming uh, a highly authoritative uh, uh, government. This was sort of completed in 1968 with the seizure of the Ba'ath Party, which established a level of authoritarianism that can only be compared with the fascistic forms that developed in Italy and even in, in Nazi Germany. When I was a professor in Egypt, many, many of my colleagues would say, oh yes, you have a dictatorship just like us, just like Mubarak. No, it is on a completely different level. This was a highly, highly organized regime with a very concerted policy of continuous militarization of society in every school, in every neighborhood, in every factory, there was a chapter of the Ba'ath Party that had records on every single individual. And Professor Iskander has looked at many of these records and perhaps we'll, we'll discuss them with you. They're truly bone chilling. It is also a regime that encouraged a continuous state of jumping from one existential crisis to the other. The country was never at rest. There was always a danger that had to be uh, followed. 
This regime, which ruled for about 40 years, created a culture of fear and uh, suspicion, not only of neighbor versus neighbor, but even within a family. This was then followed by three of the most destructive wars of the 20th century. Not enough has been written about the impact of the Iran-Iraq war for eight grueling years. It was a meat grinder of a war. And many of my Iranian colleagues here would know uh, more about this. This was a war that witnessed some of the largest battles of the 20th century, such as the Battle of Khurramshahr, for example, in 1982, where the soldiers, 18 years old or so kids, ran out of ammunition and had to go at each other with their bare hands. This was also accompanied by the two Gulf Wars, the so-called uh, two Gulf Wars, uh, which witnessed some of the most intense bombardments of any country ever in, in the history of mankind. The entire infrastructure of the country was decimated. This, these wars then created a culture of violence, a deep culture of violence. The third factor is that the country was then subjected to 13 years of the single most complete uh, uh, sanctions ever placed on any country. Nothing could come in, nothing could come out. And this is a country that was deeply dependent on imports. This decimated the Iraqi middle class, who, which had been the backbone and the anchor of the notion of Iraqi patriotism and nationalism. It also created a culture of mafiosis and gangsterism. And all of this then is capped with the fourth major event, which is the American invasion of 2003, which decapitated the state and left the country literally ungovernable. As a point of comparison, when the Americans took over Italy, which had almost a comparable population during, uh, after World War II, they had a million and a half troops to govern the country. In Iraq, there was barely 100,000, just a little bit over 100,000. It was literally left uh, without uh, a state. I remember in one of, one of the many rather very painful discussions I had on, on the media here, once I was with, with a, an American representative from the State Department and he literally stated, uh, we don't really care who governs Iraq or what happens to Iraq or whether it's a single country or many countries. The most important thing is that the oil continues to flow and that the country is no longer a threat in the, in the region. Uh, this then created a culture of chaos and continuous chaos. When one looks at these four factors, then, it is not so unusual that the social fabric becomes really frayed and strained. Uh, and yet, despite all of this, the real question then is, how is it still hanging on to its unity? I have a lot of students who come to me and say they want to work on you know, the, the many factors that led to the fragmentation of the country. To me, the more interesting question is, how could a country that has faced such incredible challenges 
still hold on to its, its unity. Um, and it, it is despite all of this that stability has returned to the country, investments are increasing. It has one of the freest presses in the region, which is not often discussed. There are regular elections that have been clumsy and so forth, but they've actually resulted in a change of, of governance. And there is a new generation that demands a better governance, which is best expressed in the October 2019 protest movement. They, the, the, the activists there regularly told me when I was in contact with them that they are especially thirsty to understand the history uh, and the functioning of their, of their country, which brings us, of course, to the archives, to the National Archives. The struggle to save the archives, to organize them, to place them at the disposal of the population at large is in fact an essential part of the rebuilding of, of Iraq. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parse. Your support is invaluable to us. To like, share, or listen to our latest episodes, please head to our pages on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. To watch the complete seminars, please head to the Elahe Omidyar Mirjalali Institute for Iranian Studies website and YouTube page, which are linked in the description. See you again on our next episode.